you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. What would you say if an unbeliever asked you about your Christianity, the Jesus way? You have a conversation with an unbeliever and they say, what's so good about your way? Why is the Jesus way better? Why should I follow the Jesus way? And perhaps uh, maybe you've had a conversation with a Jewish person and, and maybe they ask you, well, why, why should I believe in Messiah and Jesus and follow that way versus the old covenant way? What would you say? What are some things that you would point to and say, this is why I believe and this is why I think the Jesus way is better? I had a, an opportunity this past week to have lunch with a friend of mine and, and we were with another unbeliever and we got to have a, a conversation with this gentleman about the Jesus way a little bit. And he had explored Buddhism and he believed in God, but he just had a problem with this Jesus way, Jesus being the only way. He had a problem with, with Jesus making claims that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father God except through him. And so the Bible points to several reasons why his way is better and, and why we need Jesus as the only Savior, as the only Redeemer, as the only source of life, and salvation, and righteousness, freedom, hope, and purpose. And what we're going to see today in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul points us to seven or more, seven glorious effects of the new covenant. He points to the reality that there is this new and living way that we have in Christ, and there are glorious effects, glorious benefits that are accompanied with following Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And he contrasts that with the old way of Moses, of the law, of the old covenant. And so let's look at these here today. In Second Corinthians, we're going to start in verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses's face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Implication there is yes, of course. If there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what one once had glory had come to have no glory at all. Because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, 
who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden, we have renounced the We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, as we open the scriptures this morning, would you open our eyes? Give us glimpses of your glory and may we be changed. Bring freedom to our lives where there is bondage. Bring hope where there is despair. Bring healing and wholeness where there is brokenness and dysfunction. May we be transformed into your image, your glorious image, Jesus. May we behold your glory and may we become more like you as we do this morning. Break the powers of darkness. Penetrate the darkness with your powerful light and truth. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. So here's our big idea this morning. The new covenant has glorious effects upon the lives of those who are graciously brought into Christ. So God's people should be encouraged to share the gospel message with clarity And with confidence, the new covenant has glorious effects upon the lives of those who are graciously brought into Christ so that God's people should be encouraged to share the gospel message with clarity and with confidence. We're going to look at seven effects here of the New Testament. And then we're going to look at Paul's application in response to that in light of these realities. The first one is, is that the new covenant gives life. 
The new covenant gives life. He refers to the old covenant as a ministry of death. He refers to it as the letter which kills. But he says the spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. He says, now if the ministry of death carved in stone in letters of stone came with such glory so that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? So what is it about the old covenant, the letter that kills? Why do people experience some sort of death because of the letter versus the spirit which gives life? You see, God gave us the law through Moses, John said, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, the law showed us the holiness of God and God's holy and righteous and good standard. Like a mirror, when we look into it, we see reality. But it's the law is and was, was and is powerless to change us. The letter kills. It shows us how far short you and I fall from God's righteous and holy standard. It's not that it's bad. It's good, Paul says. It's holy. The law is good if it's used lawfully. Like a butter knife is great for spreading butter, but not for stabbing somebody with. Right? There's a purpose in it. And the purpose isn't to make us righteous or to transform us. But it's to show us our need for the Savior. It's a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Okay? And Christ came, and he's the only human being that lived this earth and measured up to the standards of the law. And he died. He died to satisfy the demands Of justice. The wages of sin is death. He was smitten by God and afflicted, Isaiah says. He was wounded for for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. All we like sheep have gone astray, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, God is a holy and just and righteous God. And he doesn't just sweep sin under the rug. It must be dealt with. And Christ came and he lived a righteous, godly life. He didn't deserve death. And he stepped in and he took your place and my place. This is good news. So that we can live. He took death row for you and me. The new covenant produces righteousness versus the old covenant that was described as a ministry of condemnation. Verse 9, for, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed in its glory. 
You see, the, the standard of the law, it shows us God's righteous and holy standard, but it's powerless to make us righteous. And those who try to live up to it in their own strength will find themselves worn out and falling completely short. And so we needed a savior. We needed someone who can do what we couldn't do for ourselves. As Paul says in Romans 8, for what the law could not do in that it was weak in the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and, and, and he, that, that to fulfill the demands of the law, that he might make us righteous in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Right before that, in Romans 8, 1, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is good news. We don't get condemnation under the new covenant. We get righteousness. God declares us righteous. Romans 5, 1, we are justified by faith. Not condemned. Okay? Be aware of any version of Christianity that's loaded with condemnation and puts more emphasis on you doing for God and neglects what God has done for us and the heavy lifting of the gospel. Because all our doing and all our responsibility to what God has done is, is a response to what he's done. He provides pardon of our sin. He provides righteousness. He makes unrighteous sinners righteous through faith. Isn't that good news that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? That this new covenant is a ministry of righteousness, making those who were not righteous, righteous through faith? That's just good news. I mean, if we have any sinners in here, who need to be made right or have been made right. That's just, that's just really good news. If, if you're, if I know somebody who's on death row, if you're on death row, you have a sentence of death impending. You know, there's a date, there's a time coming and you're going to have to pay for your transgressions. But if, if somebody steps in and takes your condemnation and dies in your place and the guards just let you go freely. You're completely cleared. That's life changing. That's amazing. You're set free. You're made righteous in God's sight through Jesus, all by Jesus, through his finished work on the cross. We live in light of the reality that Jesus said it is finished. The righteous demands have been taken care of and we have been made righteous through faith. That happens at a decisive moment in time when we believe having, we were justified. Okay. But our salvation doesn't just, doesn't just stay there in justification. There's more to it. There's justification. There's, there's sanctification. There's an ongoing, uh, a living out of that righteousness in which God has brought us into freely. 
And then there's glorification. When we see Jesus face to face and we're completely changed. And so the new covenant produces righteousness in us, right living, right relationship with God. Relating to him in a healthy way. We're reconciled to God. We're, we're justified legally before God. And then it brings righteousness to our relationships. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. This is the kingdom of God. Changes everything. It's powerful. Life changing. The new covenant, also the glory of the new covenant is permanent. And thus, its effects are permanent on our lives. In contrast to the old, Paul says, For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. He's referring to the new covenant. The glorious new covenant. The everlasting covenant that God says he's going to make and has made with his people and the effects of what he's done and those who've been brought into the covenant are permanent. Everlasting life, does that sound permanent? Like you live forever, you get to be with God forever? That's good news. That's good news for you and me. The new covenant also produces hope-filled confidence. Paul says we have, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. The new King James says we use boldness of speech. We have hope-filled confidence, and that confidence both works toward God, as he says in, in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. We can approach the throne of grace boldly with confidence and find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need because of Jesus. Not because we lived a great week or a great year and, 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 and we've done really well, but because Jesus' righteousness has become our righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll get there, Lord willing. And so we have this confidence instead of this slavish fear and lack of confidence in this anxiety, like, well, I don't know what God's going to do to me. I don't know what's going to happen. We have this bold, hope-filled confidence to approach God, and we have this confidence to speak the gospel, because even if people do something bad to us, Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear God, who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. So we don't have to be afraid of people. Paul, when he was preaching everywhere, people opposed him very strongly, and they beat him, and they threw him in the prison. You think that might like rob you of your confidence to keep preaching the gospel when you get beat up a few times and ridiculed and falsely accused and you, you, you think that would like take your confidence away, right? But, but for Paul, he continued to endure because he had been brought into this glorious new covenant and had this glorious ministry in which he didn't lose heart. And so in the new covenant produces hope filled confidence how's your confidence right now towards god 
Now, I think we need to make sure that our confidence isn't based in ourself because of we're, because we did, we were doing well, our performance. If it is, <clears throat> when we're doing well, we'll get puffed up. If it's based in ourselves. And when we're doing bad and we're just failing and we are not living Christ-like, we'll just live under condemnation, guilt, and shame and just shut down. But when our confidence is in Christ, because of Christ, because of who he is and what he's done, because of him, I'm in Christ Jesus, who's my redemption, my righteousness, my sanctification. Because of him, I can continue with confidence to live the life that he's called me to live and be who he's called me to be and do what he's called me to do by his grace. The new covenant also produces spiritual sight. He opens up our eyes. He opens up our eyes. Paul talks about this veil in the in verse 14. It says, but their minds were hardened, speaking about the Israelites. To this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies, lies over the hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Verse 18, and, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. I want you to think for a moment, those of you, when, when you became, first became a Christian, and what changed in your spiritual sight? The lens and how you saw the world? The lens and how you saw yourself, the lens and how you saw God, how you saw God at that moment. What changed? For me, I describe it as like when I got contacts or glasses. Like, and everything was just fuzzy in the world. I couldn't see clearly all the beautiful colors and, and, and definition. I, I, you know, I'd see fuzzy faces back there where David is, right? But now I can, I can see. When I became a Christian, my eyes were open. I was blind. But now I see I was lost, but now I'm found. And this is what happens when when we come to Christ, when we turn to the Lord, when God's light penetrates the darkness in our lives. He opens blind eyes. Remember, this is what happened with Paul. He was spiritually blind, persecuting the church. And Jesus shows up and breaks into the history of his life. And then he was literally blind for Three days. God said, I'm going to send you, Paul. I'm going to send you to turn them from darkness to light, to open their eyes. To turn them from Satan's power to God's power. This godly man comes and he prays for Paul and the scales fall off and his eyes are literally opened and he, the, the entire trajectory of his life was changed. And so the gospel, the new covenant provides spiritual sight. The new covenant also brings freedom as opposed to bondage. The Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Isn't this good? We're made to be free, to live in the freedom that God's provided for us in Christ. 
Jesus said, he who the son sets free is free indeed. Don't settle for bondage. Don't settle for bondage of, 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 of um, religious bondage. Don't settle for indulging the flesh, sinful, um, uh, fleshly bondage. Don't settle for any bondage, any yokes of slavery, but walk in that freedom that God has for you in Christ that comes from the Spirit, by the Spirit, who lives inside of each of us who are genuinely Christians. He has sealed us. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. He dwells inside. The third person of the Trinity lives inside of each one of you who are children of God. You've become new creations in Christ Jesus. The old is past. Behold, all things are new. Charles Hodge writes about three different aspects of this freedom that we've been brought into through the new covenant. First of all, freedom from the law in all its forms. Freedom from obligation to fulfill the law as the condition of our justification before God. This involves freedom from condemnation and from a legal slavish fear. Love what he says in Romans 8. For you have not received a spirit of bondage again to fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out. Abba, Father, we're brought into the family of God and the legal stuff has been taken care of. The Diaz just went through a season where they had to walk through all that legal stuff and fostering and adopting their precious boy, Matthias. It was a lot of work. Kevin talked about it. And and they graciously, sacrificially took care of all that that, that needed to be taken care taken care of they fulfilled the stipulations and did what they needed to do so that matthias can have a forever home a permanent home where he can experience love and wholeness and stability and he can flourish as a diaz child as a son in the diaz family and be all that god's called him to be and this is what god calls us into this freedom in the family of god the, the, the legal stuff is taken care of. We don't have to worry about them coming to take us away. We're in the family now. Freedom from the dominion of sin, Romans 6, 6, and the power of Satan. He delivers us from, from, from uh, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Isn't this amazing? Freedom from the bondage of corruption, not only as, as to the soul, but as to the body. And so you, saints, have been called to freedom. Live in that freedom as the people of God. And don't submit to any yoke of slavery. And lastly, the new covenant produces transformation in the lives of those who've been brought in to Christ. I love this verse. I quote this verse so often and it's so encouraging and it's so hope filled. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. 
As I've said before, be aware of accepting a version of Christianity that does not involve or accompany transformation, life change. Because if anyone is in Christ Jesus, they are a new creation. The old is past. Behold, all things are new. And what's beautiful about this new covenant, one of the things, one of the glories of it is we've been provided pardon, forgiveness of our sins. Okay? We've been provided freedom from the dominion of sin and Satan and the law dominating. And we've been provided power to be transformed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of each of us. There's power. It's not just us trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, oh, I just got to discipline myself more. We're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. But then we're told, for it's God who works in you. It's God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Now, I know as, as a Christian, I have been discouraged at times by the slowness of this process of transformation. Sometimes I have felt like I wish the transformation would happen sooner, quicker. Anybody else with me? You, 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 have you experienced that? You see little attitudes or habits or just things that just grieve the Holy Spirit, that hurt relationships, hinder your relationship, your communion with God. And you're grieved like, why is it taking so long for me to change and to be more like Jesus? Well, that's a good sign if you, if you care about that and you're grieved over that. That's a really good sign for you. Because our progress and our, our, our um, moving toward Christ-likeness just points back to the authenticity of what happened when we first became Christians and we became justified. Our sanctification, if you will, confirms our justification and should give us even greater assurance of the glorification when we see Jesus and he changes us. Sorry for all the big theological words, y'all. So when we're made, when we're, when we're, when we grow in who God's called us to be, we're being transformed. It, it should give us greater assurance. It should give us greater hope even when we're struggling that God is committed to changing us into Christ's likeness. That Romans 8 29, that we've been predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ the Son. God is committed to that vision for your life. To conform you, to transform you into the image of his son. To reflect the glory and the beauty of who God is in your character. And that's what God created man from the very beginning for, right? In his own image. To glorify him. We're made for that. To, to render him glory. And to reflect his glory in this world. And so praise God for the hope that we have of change. I'm sure there's, there's several here who are struggling right now and, and maybe feel despair about the lack of change in your life. I want to give you new covenant hope, gospel grace and hope and confidence 
that the power of the Spirit can change you. He can change the hardest of hearts and He can break the strongest of strongholds of sin in anyone's life. He sets captives free and He changes hearts. And only God can do that. Isn't it a miracle? Because no man can do that. You can throw someone in prison and lock them up and throw away the key for the rest of their lives, but you can't change their heart. You can try to modify their behavior and keep them from hurting more people by locking them up and putting external restrictions on them. That's what the law does, right? And, and thank God we have some, some of those governors that kind of help provide some order and, and so there's not just craziness going on. Or more craziness going on. But we can't expect the law, legislation, to change hearts. Only the power of the Spirit can do that. And He can do it. And that should give us hope. That should give us encouragement that we have a message to share with people who are in bondage. And so let's look at some of the applications that Paul has in chapter 4 in light of these glorious new covenant realities. First of all, Paul was encouraged by this glorious ministry of the new covenant. Even though he had gone through so much, shipwrecked, beaten, um, uh, falsely accused, I mean, all kinds of things that went, uh, that, that he went through for the gospel's sake, for Jesus' sake. But he was encouraged. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Man, this is a great verse for a discouraged preacher. Right? Or just a discouraged Christian. You've been brought into new covenant realities, glorious new covenant realities of transformation and freedom and confidence, righteousness, life everlasting and you get the opportunity of representing jesus and telling people about jesus and sharing that good news with them and so in light of these realities paul says we don't lose heart we don't give up because this is an amazing ministry he calls it a ministry of reconciliation in chapter five that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting their trespasses against them. What an amazing ministry to be able to have that good news. Well, you think you're on death row, or you are, but you're free to go. You're forgiven, you're free. There was a woman like that in John chapter 8. The law demanded that she die for adultery. She was brought to the feet of Jesus. The law was doing its work, and those who were up trying to uphold it were doing what they thought they were supposed to do with that. And at the feet of Jesus, she found mercy and grace. And he said, he who's without sin, let him cast the first stone. No one could throw the first stone. No one could condemn. Jesus said, where are your accusers to this woman? He says, neither do I condemn you. And he said, go and sin no more. And so Paul was encouraged by this glorious ministry of this new covenant. Paul also committed himself to biblical integrity in his communication. He didn't water down the message or change the message to make it less offensive to people. Trying to help God out. Be super seeker sensitive. Or crafty. 
He says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And so in light of these glorious realities that we experience in the new covenant, Paul is going to be faithful to shoot straight with what the word says, to rightly handle the word. To have biblical integrity in how he handled the message of the gospel. The truth of scripture that he proclaimed. And here, that's one of our values here at City Church. And that's why we go through the Bible the way that we do. And we get our points and ideas from the Bible. And we let the Bible shape what we talk about here. Peter says, if anyone's gifted in speaking, let them speak God's words. Not our own words, but God's words. If anyone serves, let them serve in the ability that God supplies. And so Paul walked in this biblical integrity. He's just going to preach the word and let people respond how they're going to respond to it. He he also understood the battle for the spiritually blind in chapter 4. Or chapter 4, verse 4. He says, in this case, the God of this world, that's referring to Satan lowercase g there the god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of christ who is the image of god paul understood that there were spiritual forces working in the lives of those who don't believe and there was this struggle there was this inability There's this inability in unbelievers to see and perceive the beauty, the light of the glory of Christ, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Just like this past week when I was sitting sitting there with this guy who rejected Christianity. I was trying to reason with him and explain to him why Jesus is better why Jesus really is the way. And I wanted to share my testimony and go into that. And he shared some, some of his journey. But I felt this. I felt like there's just these blinders here. There's just the stronghold over this person's mind. There's a lack of spiritual sight. I can't break through that myself. I can't make him see. But God can. God can open his eyes. Have you ever, you ever had that situation? Maybe a, a family member or a friend? And you're just lovingly trying to communicate the truth of the gospel. And you're, you're just trying to present the message as clearly and humbly and lovingly as you can. And it's just like, it's not registering. They don't see the beauty. I was trying to think of some different ways to illustrate this. Thinking about with my kids and how there's... Certain foods that I want them to try and experience the goodness of these certain foods. Like, you don't like this? This is delicious. Or music, that's beautiful. Or art, that's beautiful. Some people just don't see it and don't perceive the beauty and the glory that's in it. And that's how it is with unbelievers. They don't see the beauty and the glory of Jesus. The one who's merciful, the one who's just, the one who's faithful, who's gracious, full of grace and truth. They don't see the the glory of Christ. But there's hope because God can penetrate that darkness. And even though a blind person 
can't see the sun, it doesn't mean that the sun's not there. It's still there. Even when we can't see the sun and the clouds and it's, the clouds are blocking us from seeing its, its light, its beams of light shining through, the sun is still there. It doesn't change the fact that the sun is still there, whether you deny the fact that the sun is there or not. It's there. And we believe that the Son of God is there and He is working and shining in this world. God shines. Christ shines. But Satan blinds. And so there's a battle. There's a battle, a spiritual battle going on. There's a battle with, with just hardness of heart as well. And love for sin. Jesus said in John chapter 3 that people don't come to the light because they love the darkness. They love the darkness because their deeds are evil. In other words, they love their sin. The passing pleasures of sin. Paul also, in response to these glorious realities, he was Christ-centered. He said, for we, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Jesus is Lord. Paul wasn't self-promoting, trying to get his name out there, get people to like him. He was trying to get people to trust Jesus and know Jesus because only Jesus satisfies. Only Jesus has all authority in heaven and in earth. He's Lord. Caesar isn't Lord. He's worthy of our obedience, our devotion, our all. Because he reigns. This is good news. That Jesus is Lord. He's in charge. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. And if, if, if Jesus wasn't who he says he is, and he didn't command what he, he did, commanded his disciples to do, then it would be arrogant for us to try to go and lead people to Christ and make disciples. It'd be presumptuous and arrogant of us to try to convert people to Christianity. But this is Jesus' idea, and this is Jesus' authority in which he sent Paul and his disciples, and he sends us out into the world to be his representatives and to share this good news, to proclaim him, not ourselves. I love John the Baptist's words in John chapter 3. He says, he must increase and I must decrease. May we be a people who are Christ-centered and we allow Jesus to reign on the throne of our hearts and on our lives. Or we talk more about him than anyone or anything else. He has our affections. He has our allegiance. He has our attention. Are you Christ-centered, church? Is Christ the center of your conversations? Are you trying to move there in some way? Let's be Christ-centered. Lastly, Paul was confident in God's power to save. I love this verse. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Paul is going back to creation, pointing to how God said, let there be light. Let light come forth and shine. 
points back to creation, and then he brings us to this new creation work that he does. And he shines the light of the gospel, and it comes through preaching. It comes through Christians sharing, opening their mouth. Not just doing good deeds, but sharing good news about the Savior, about the Lord, about the King who came to bring rescue. We share the good news and the Holy Spirit works through those words and and penetrates the darkness and he shines and he opens blind eyes as we sang earlier. You opened up my eyes and made me come alive from darkness to light. You silenced all my fears. Your mercy drew me near to your side. God can do this. You got family members that come to your mind that you're thinking about? Extended family, friends, neighbors. You're thinking, man, I wish God would do that with this person. We've been praying for him. We've been reaching out to her. We would love to see them experience salvation. Rescue, redemption. God can do it. And Paul was confident in God's power to do so. That's why he didn't tamper the word. He didn't water it down. He just preached it. He focused on Jesus. He knew that there were going to be some people who would reject it, who who were blinded, whose eyes wouldn't be open, who would stay in the hardness of heart and in their sin. And he also knew that there would be people who hear the message, who God opens their eyes and penetrates the darkness and makes them come alive and see Jesus as wonderful and glorious and beautiful. So let me close with a couple points of application here, church. First, be aware of submitting to a yoke of slavery. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There's freedom in this new covenant. The Spirit brings freedom from bondage. Paul had some really strong words towards those in the church that were called Judaizers who were trying to lead people back to the old way and downplay the new way, minimize the new way. He called it a ministry of condemnation. Don't submit to that. Stand in the freedom that you have in Christ. And be convinced of God's power to transform your life. Be convinced that you can change. Have hope. Have confidence. Be convinced that God can change even you. Not just other people out there who are really lost. Or, or other Christian friends that you have who have some really hard struggles. You're like, yeah, let me pray for you, brother or sister. God can do this for you. Sometimes we struggle to believe for us. That God can change us and change our circumstances and change our hearts. Be convinced of that. That as you behold his glory, as you fix your eyes on him, as you meditate on who he is, and the scriptures accompany us in this. The the scriptures are our primary means for beholding the glory of God. We see perfect, we see clear revelation of who God is in scripture. We look at creation We have some revelation about God's ways and his invisible attributes. But we look at scripture and we have special revelation clear to us. This is what God is like. 
Behold your God and be changed as you do, church. Enjoy gazing upon the beauty of God. You're, you're wired to gaze upon the beauty of God. Don't spend hours upon hours gazing upon the corruption of this world through your screen. Gaze upon the beauty of God, the glory of God, and be changed. And then share the gospel with confidence. In this harvest season, in this fall season, engage others with confidence that the gospel does have the ability to save and rescue the worst of sinners. Don't write anybody off as, man, that guy's just unredeemable, or that girl, just unredeemable. God could never rescue that person. Don't, don't do that for anybody. Believe that if God can save the apostle Paul, a terrorist, blasphemer, murderer, violent man, he can save you, this, this person that you're thinking about. And if, and if God saved you and me, he can save other sinners as well. He can change hearts. And so let's respond. Kevin, if you'd come on up and lead us. If anybody wants prayer, I'd love to pray with anybody up front here. Or if you just want to pray right there where you're at and talk to God about whatever he's putting his finger on in your life. Whatever battles you're facing right now. Believe that he has the power to change you and change your circumstances, to bring freedom where, there, where there's bondage, to bring change where you feel stuck for you and for others. Conform you into the, the, the image of Christ. God is more committed to that vision for our lives than we are. Do you believe that? God is more committed to that vision of our lives for our lives than we are to conform us into the image of his son and he's going to do it it's going to happen from one degree from one degree of glory to the next it's going to happen sometimes it's slower than we want it to happen but it's going to happen and he's going to have a glorious bride when he returns without spot without blemish and we're that bride church And so, Lord, thank you for your covenant-keeping love, for drawing us into this new, glorious covenant, everlasting covenant. May we live in the light of the goodness of it and the glory of it. Open our eyes to see how wonderful you are and how wonderful what you provided for us is. May we not take it for granted. May we share enthusiastically what you've done.